The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books podcast with me, Sean Kane. Me, Richard Lee. And me, Claire Armistead. This week we are bringing the magic of science fiction to your ears. We are joined by SF duo Daniel Abraham and Ty Frank, who write together under the name James S.A. Corey. And later we'll be discussing the shortlists for this year's Costa Book Awards. Daniel and Ty's best-selling space opera series, The Expanse, began in 2012 and is due to come to a conclusion in 2020. The award-winning TV adaptation is now on Amazon Prime, with the fourth season due to launch on 13th of December. But Richard, for people who haven't yet dived into The Expanse, what are they all about? Well, this, it's a massive, soon-to-be nine-book series. Uh, Leviathan Wakes was published in 2012, with the as-yet-untitled conclusion due March next year. It all begins in the middle of the 24th century, with the solar system colonised out as far as Uranus. So human society, as they describe it, is kind of beyond race, but nevertheless it's divided instead between people living on Earth, people living on Mars, and people living on various asteroids, moons, space stations, and so on, which they call belters. And as always with SF, it throws a, a light on current issues, particularly race, privacy, there's a kind of thread going through it about how much people should say and what you should keep secret and mm. whether it's a good idea to, to be open about this kind of thing. And also with its kind of expansion of the solar system sort of storyline, it's inevitably all about environmental collapse and resources and how we just always want more stuff. Mm. I mean, I, I wouldn't usually want to give away a surprise that appears on page 344 of a 561-page novel, but because <laughs> but, there are eight books, I kind of feel that I'm allowed to give a little bit of a spoiler, because the series kicks off or really kind of gets going with the discovery of this thing that they call a proto-molecule, which is kind of a bit of SF kind of hand-wavy stuff. <laughs> it's a kind of a set of free-floating instructions designed to adapt to and guide other replicating systems, which say it's, it's a bit of goo, which makes organic stuff like people into other bits of goo and then into other bits of slightly more exciting goo and then kind of weird tech and kind of <laughs> everything it starts there with this kind of alien stuff so i mean book one is basically the discovery of this proto-molecule so you mean we're all going to become mark zuckerberg <laughs> worse than that mark zuckerberg <laughs> on, yeah no actually mark zuckerberg <laughs> on steroids uh, there's the discovery of the molecules in book one and there's a kind of experimental military program in book two by book three an alien stargate has opened beyond the orbit of uranus and book four there's already a struggle over a colony on a world around another star so it's this kind of massive kind of space adventure held together by these recurring characters i mean there's james holden who's the he's an idealistic former navy officer and has and, and his crew and there's uh, also there's christian avasarala who's a high-ranking politician and grandmother rather nice character there um bobby draper is a kind of ass-kicking martian marine who's of course a woman and detective joe miller who's a kind of hard-bitten police officer on series well when they came into the studio daniel and ty began by reading a passage from the first book where Detective Miller is lugging a nuclear bomb through Eros Station, which has been taken over by the proto-molecule, the people who used to live there altered beyond all recognition. Something grey and the size of Miller's two fists together flew by almost too fast to see. It hadn't been a bird. Something scuttled behind an overturned vending machine. He realized what was missing. There had been a million and a half people on Eros, and a large percentage of them had been here on the casino level when their own personal apocalypse came. But there were no bodies. Or, no, that wasn't true. The black crust, the millions of dark rills above him with their soft oceanic glow, those were the corpses of Eros, recreated, human flesh remade. A suit alarm told him that he was starting to hyperventilate. Darkness started to creep in at the edge of his vision. Miller sank to his knees. 
Don't pass out, you son of a bitch, he told himself. Don't pass out, or if you do, at least land so your weight's on the damn trigger. Julie put her hand on his. He could almost feel it, and it steadied him. She was right. They were only bodies. Just dead people. Victims. Just another slab of recycled meat. Same as every unlicensed whore he'd seen stabbed to death in the cheap hotels on series. Same as the suicide who'd thrown themselves out of airlocks. Okay, the protomolecule had mutilated the flesh in weird ways. Didn't change what it was. Didn't change what he was. When you're a cop, he told Julie, repeating something he'd told every rookie he'd been partnered with in his career, you don't have the luxury of feeling things. You have to do the job. So do the job, she said gently. He nodded. He stood. Do the job. As if in response, the sound in his suit changed. The arrow's feed fluting up through a hundred different frequencies before exploding. Into a harsh flood of what he thought was Hindi. Human voices. Till human voices wake us, he thought, without quite being able to recall where the phrase came from. Which one of you guys is James, and which is Corey, and who's who's this SA fella? I am James. He is Corey. <laughs> Seriously, the, we came up with the name because my middle name is James. His middle name is Corey. SA is actually my daughter's initials, so uh, Ty thought it would be fun to throw her initials in there, so she's part of that too. She's going to be the one who's, I figure... Uh, managing our literary estate since we're dead, so might as well get in on it early. So can we just have, like, formal introductions? You are... I'm Daniel Abraham. I'm Ty Frank. There you go. And you guys together are the phenomenon. That is James S.A. Corey. So how did this phenomenon start? How did you guys start working together? Uh, Daniel said to me, you've got a good idea. You should let me write it and we'll split the money. Basically, yeah. That's unfortunately true. It's, it's, uh... it's all about the money, money as the song goes. Well, and it was... For fun. One of the things that I've, I've come across over and over and over in my career is the things that have been the most successful the, have been the ones that were least uh, geared toward a market. And the ones which happen to have like a good idea. Well, having somebody else's good idea and being able to uh, take it and split the money has worked out very well for me too. <laughs> so what are, the, what are the mechanics? Who's kind of holding the pen? It varies depending uh, on the chapter. The way we've always done the the books is uh, we outline together fairly extensively uh, for the thing. And then for each chapter, we'll go through and say what is is happening in that chapter. And then one of us will write it. The other will edit it. Um, We'll put it in the back of the master document. By the end of the manuscript, we have a manuscript that everybody, you know, we've both written about half. We both edited about half. And then each of us will take a pass through and very liberally change whatever it is we need, think needs changing. Generally speaking, by the end, we can tell you who wrote the first draft of any given chapter, but we can't tell you who wrote which sentence. I often give Daniel credit for the best lines, and every now and then he'll say, no, you, you actually wrote that one. <laughs> I just If it's a great line, I just assume he wrote it. Do you say there's like outlining going on? What kind of scale, and was you, were you outlining on a kind of eight-novel arc right from the beginning? No, we started the, the kind of the huge arc outline somewhere around book two and three. That's very interesting, because having just read book one, I had a bunch of questions about kind of gender and that kind of stuff, which most of which were answered as soon as I met your kick-ass female marine Bobby and your wily politician and grandmother Avasarala. So was volume two some sort of response to the overwhelming maleness of volume one? You know, we get a lot of comments about the overwhelming maleness of volume one. 
because the the characters who we picked as the point of view characters were were male. Uh, I mean, we've never done anything as a as a direct response to to feedback. I, that it becomes noise, and you have to you have to ignore it and do what you want to do. But but the truth is, when uh, we were you know outlining the second book and. Uh, the the characters were a little amorphous at that point. We knew we wanted a political character. Uh, Daniel's model for that was always Rahm Emanuel because uh, it was around the time President Obama was, was running for office. I knew I wanted a, a military character, uh, a Marine. Uh, my uncle was a Marine, so I wanted to to do something uh, set in a in a military setting. And and they weren't really people yet; they were just sort of placeholders. But when we really started defining them as people, one of the things that we talked about doing is is and this wasn't in a response to anything other than just our own uh, wishes on the kind of thing we like to write. One of the things we did is we just gender flopped everybody. So the the parent who is desperately trying to find their lost child, which would traditionally or like in in most fiction has been the woman trying to find her children, we made him a man, and that became Prax, uh, the badass marine and the scary uh, politician, both became women. Um, and that was just because that seemed like a fun way to do it. It's just because it was not for an agenda, just because it was fun that way. Yeah, we do everything we do because we think it's going to be fun. Just because, again, the, the Leviathan's published 2012 and they, they come thereafter. And this is kind of right in the middle of the, all the sad puppy stuff. I'm not sure if you guys remember that. So, I mean, there's a bunch of people who are cross about the idea that there's kind of representation going on in science fiction. And you guys happen to be putting in, like, badass marines. And you happen to be putting in, you know, grandmothers who aren't stupid and you have you know as you say a father who's desperate to find his child is this is are those two things connected well in that they are both pulling from the same zeitgeist albeit in opposite directions sure i mean we're all responding to the environment that we're in and i think the things that outraged some of the sad puppies failed to outrage us yeah i my my feeling is is those people can generally safely be ignored. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we, none, nothing we did was either a response to criticism about the, the first book not having enough women in it or uh, the sad puppies being angry that books have any women in them. Um, it's just, it's always been just the things we wanted to do, the things we thought would be uh, fun or, or challenging or interesting. I mean, one of the things about the world you're building is a world where human race characteristics are kind of blending away, but prejudice hasn't vanished. It's just aimed at different things. So you've got Earthers and Marshes and Belters, and there's kind of prejudice between those three camps. Is that because you're trying to look at contemporary issues of race through a different lens? Sure, partly. And also partly because that's the way that history looks. I mean, if you if you look at American history, um, Irish were not white. Italians were not white. Irish and Italians are now white. Um, these categories are constructed in the day and according to the politics and history that has informed them. And they shift. Uh, the idea of moving forward a couple hundred years and having different lines drawn, uh, that's gonna happen. We could get everything else wrong. That's fine. Um, <laughs> but but that's gonna be how it is. Yeah, I mean, the the history of humanity is, is defined by in-group and out-group definitions and what defines the in-group and the out-group changes all the time but the fact that there are this is my group and everybody outside of it is 
lesser or bad in some way, that has never changed. So the, yeah, the, the idea that we will abandon that somehow magically just doesn't fit with you know, any of our history. It's also a world that seems pretty impressed with the military. I'm interested. You say that your relative uh, was a marine. I mean, is that that's why? Is it? No, it's uh, it's because it, the most interesting times to write about are the times when things are about to change, and times of great conflict are are times of change. And because we're writing about a time of great conflict, there's a there's a lot of military presence in it. But it's not just that they're there. It's also that the novels seem to be kind of basically on their side. They seem to think the marines are pretty cool, really. I mean, there's a moment when Holden thinks to himself, it was easy to make fun of the Marine, but four Marines had died getting him off the Donager. Holden promised himself he'd never make fun of them again. Yeah, uh, that's that's telling you more about Holden than it is about our attitude toward uh, military people. Holden is just a, a sort of one of those people who, who is who is constantly sort of scolding himself. Yeah, but and, then again, in the same escape, Gomez does what seems to be almost impossible. There's a kind of respect in the novel for that impossible feat that he does, holding the people off. And, the, and, and again, Bobby, your your kick-ass marine, she says she or she thinks again to herself. She thinks civvies didn't get it. No one did. Uh, do you yeah. think that in some sense the marines get it? No, no, I, it's not that so much. I mean, we're 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 very tight third person, so. When we're in Bobby's head, we are in the head of somebody who absolutely buys into all of the sort of military uh, code of honor sort of belief system. Uh, we certainly have other characters who are deeply skeptical of uh, military culture and all that. It's just, it depends on what character's head you're in. And of course, uh, Holden, who you were just talking about, was a former naval officer himself. So he sort of was indoctrinated in that way. Um, I, do, I don't think you would have any of that uh, reading inside of uh, chapters inside of Amos's head. He doesn't care at all about uh, that sort of military code of honor. And, and, and part of the ongoing argument of the series, of the books, of the show, is that none of these are a monoculture. There are absolutely honorable uh, people within the military. There are also people who are absolutely not. Um, and there are absolutely honorable people who are among the belters. There are people who are not. Anything, any any slice you make of humanity um, has about the same number of uh, jerks in it. So, but you're going to say the same thing in that case about wealth as well. Because, I mean, again, there's quite a lot of uh, skepticism about the idea of wealth and the kind of freedom that the wealth buys you. I mean, in the age of Facebook and Google, there's characters who are think looking at the very rich people that surround them and thinking... In some sense, that's not right. Well, um, when you talk about wealth inequality, yeah, if you have people who have tremendous privilege, some of them are nice, thoughtful, kind, honorable people. Some of them are terrible wastes of air, um, much as you would see at any at any level of wealth. The 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 circumstances that we find ourselves in as individuals. Um, and especially the ones involving great power, I think, don't. Um, there's, the, there's the idea that, that power corrupts. I don't think that's true. I think power reveals. Because the point of power is that it can be abused. If you don't have power, you can't abuse power. 
if you can abuse power and you choose to, that tells me something about you. Mm -hmm. If you have great power and you choose not to abuse it, that tells me something about you too. Yeah, I, I think there's a I think there's a, a deeper narrative thing going on here that you may be responding to, and that is that that in order to uh, the most interesting thing to write about is somebody in conflict with their own beliefs, and the way that you can create conflict with somebody's beliefs is to have them deeply believe those things. So uh, Bobby's betrayal by the military only works if she starts out absolutely believing in the idea of military honor. Uh, Holden's, Holden is a, a, a rebel, somebody who got thrown out of the military for his refusal to believe in sort of the, the military version of things and then is confronted by the idea that there are these people in the military who are willing to die to save him. So it's it's not so much, and, and in the case of like wealth, you know, we take somebody... Uh, who has never had wealth and you put them in a position where they have it and then they're forced to confront their beliefs about it or you take it away from them and then they're forced to confront their beliefs about it. Um, that's the point of all this stuff. So, so you have to start them in a place where they believe something is true. And what they believe is true is not necessarily saying anything about what Daniel or I believe is true. It's just a good narrative place to put them so that the things that follow can really shake them shake them up because that's the you know uh, george martin quotes this all the time it was, it was faulkner it, I think. it was faulkner who said the only thing worth writing about is the human heart in conflict with itself so you're you're always looking for the interesting characters are the ones who believe something very strongly and then are forced to confront it so let's talk about where you put these people then where the situations in which they find themselves where they're tested there's a willingness to follow the story into places of horror well yeah horror is a great genre I mean, the series opens with kind of a, a vision of dismembered body parts. You've got the second part driven by the kidnap of a child, possibly for, you know, the, the suggestion is strongly made the child is going to be involved in some sort of awful prostitution ring. There's uh, also the, the third contains a vision of Armageddon, complete with blood and torn flesh and cries for help. It's, it's strong stuff. Yeah, well, horror is, uh, the, I mean, the reason horror has stayed popular forever in media is because it does hit us at the most visceral level. It's it's one of the things that that requires very little explanation. It, it it has an immediate emotional response. And the beautiful thing about science fiction is that it doesn't have an Ur story. It doesn't have a, a central narrative that uh, that it can accommodate mystery and horror and romance and adventure. All of those within that that genre. That's one of the reasons uh, I think. Samuel Delaney talks about um, science fiction as a mode of writing instead of a genre. Yeah, for sure. Uh, this, uh, again, you may well say this is Bobby talking, and of course it is Bobby talking, but Bobby doesn't think that talking will fix her PTSD. She says, I'm going to find out who put that thing on Ganymede, and I'm going to kill them. And that's Bobby talking, but it seems to be a sort of popular solution. Well, and, and, she, and she fails to do that. She never, she never actually does that thing. She thinks that's what's going to fix it. Now, she is forced to confront her fears when she runs into another version of the thing that killed all of her teammates. And so she, is, she confronts literally the thing that is the source of her fear, but she never gets any redemption through violence. She never gets to kill anyone who is responsible for the things that happened to her. And as the series goes on, and Bobby is a recurring character who will show up later, she comes to peace with that. Um, so, so sure, you, you, can, you can have people believe 
uh, that sort of these tropey ideas that like I'll, I'll everything will be better if I can kill the person who who did bad things to me. But uh, it's interesting to put start people in that place and then have them confront the idea that that doesn't solve anything. You can Avasarala can save as many people as she wants, and none of them will be her dead son. And Bobby can uh, kill as many people as she wants, and it won't bring back her fire team. Um, that that drive to find redemption, um, which is tremendously difficult to find, that's familiar. That's something that I think a lot of us are are, are carrying with us, even if we don't want to face that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think our our view on redemption is probably best illustrated by uh, the character Clarissa Mao, who comes to a point where she says there are things you can do that you will never get redemption. All you can get is acceptance. And I think most of our characters go through that, where they they believe that there is a certain thing they can do, which will redeem them or give them peace. And almost never do they get that specific thing, but they find another way to come to acceptance. But like usually in, in society, often we think that people basically getting a gun and solving their problems, that way is a bad idea for various reasons. So it seems to me that in some sense, the novels are very forgiving of that motivation, even if that's often thwarted in the, in, the, in, 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 in the long term. They're very forgiving of the idea that actually you can understand why people want to go out and do that. Well, and it's certainly... Uh, it's an impulse, even if we uh, train ourselves out of it, which I think is the right thing to do. And I think society should uh, work to train those impulses out of people. It's still immediately um, understandable. When somebody hurts you, um, even if you would never hurt them back, there is always the immediate reaction of, I want to hurt that person. And when you're writing uh, and, and in people's heads, uh, as, as writing is allowed to be, um, that is that is a response that people are going to understand. It's simp- they will be sympathetic to it. Um, we try not to have that ultimately be the solution. Uh, I mean, we do have some characters who are sociopaths. For them, it's not even about redemption. It's about just using violence as a tool to get the things that they want. I don't know that we're particularly overly sympathetic to that, but it does exist in the world. Um, the you know, I mean, our our. Our main, our, our main through character, James Holden, who's been in every one of the books, um, we abuse every time he thinks he's got a solution like that. We abuse him of it. We take it away from him. We we force him to find something else. Uh, Bobby, you know, who, who's who is the character built for redemptive violence? We take redemptive violence away from her. Vasarala, who is the character who is 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 built to believe that she is smarter and better than everybody else is forced to confront her frailty it's interesting also what isn't there i mean there's not much there's not very much ai there's not very much kind of uh, gene editing kind of body changing stuff there's not much there's no time or at least i'm kind of halfway through there's no time travel yet are these things that you've ruled out in some kind of formal way or are these just not happened yet well i mean there. Uh, so this is a conversation we have all the time. There's AI everywhere. It's just uncommented. Um, you know, the, they talk about the Rosinante as being very smart. They, uh, there are many times in the books where there's a complex problem and they just ask the ship to solve it. Yeah, but we don't hear, we don't feel the ship how it thinks. We don't interact with the ship as a kind of other character. The ship just, as you say, is a black box that solves the problem. Yeah, and, and in fact, my belief is that uh, that is what, how AI is going to present. Um, the idea that we will make 
machines, thinking machines, and that they will think like us and, and, you know, we'll be buddies with them, I find strangely naive. Uh, you know, biology, the meat in which we are packaged is so big a part of how we, uh, how we think and, and why we do the things that we do that when you, when you put consciousness in something that doesn't share any of our physical traits, believing that they would have any of the same impulses that we have seems very odd to me. And it's, it's because of that. It's because you don't think that's going to happen. It's not because it's kind of narratively complicated to have AI or awkward for kind of plotting to have time travel. It's because well, you think that's just not how yeah, it's going to go. I, I don't buy it. When, when I read a, when I read a, a humanoid robot that, that basically thinks and acts like a person, I just never buy that. The Prius problem came up in, in the writer's room for the, for the television show when I, uh, I was talking about it in terms of, you know, hybrid cars are an amazing technology. No one ever gets into their hybrid and goes, look at us getting into this hybrid, which will use a gas engine to generate electricity, which will feed the batteries and braking will also feed. And nobody ever thinks that, much less says it to each other. And so when you're, whenever you're in fiction and people start talking to each other about the technology that everyone should just take for granted, it always feels very false. So you have to imply those things. And so we're, we're trying to constantly imply the presence of very intelligent machine systems. And one of the things we talked about as one of the basic technologies you would have to have in order to have a permanent population in space is cancer has to be a solved problem. Um, and so in the books, cancer is a solved problem. It's interesting. On the front of the paperback, there's a quote that calls the series uh, the series of novels as close as you'll get to a Hollywood blockbuster in book form. Were you kind of writing with the screen in mind from the start? Oh, Lord, no. Uh, one of the things about writing books is that it has a different set of strengths and a different set of obstacles than other media. And so, yeah, when you're writing a book, you absolutely want to lean into the things that are peculiar to books because it can do a better job of that. So there's uh, Elan Mastai says that writing a novel is like going for a swim, whereas writing a screenplay is more like wrestling. Is that kind of how it feels to you? For me, it feels like the difference between a, a, a club and a scalpel. Um, a book is a lot of words, and, and the book has to do all of the work. It has to set the scene. It has to tell you what the furniture looks like. It has to tell you what everybody looks and smells like. Um, it has to get inside of people's heads and tell you what their moods are. It, 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 a lot of work happens on the page. Whereas a screenplay is, how do I tell 200 professional craftspeople how to make it the thing that I want made in the fewest possible words? Uh, and so it really is more fine point writing. It's, it's, it's finding the exact word that means that exact thing that, that the prop guy will understand and the costume guy will understand. And it's and, like trigger points. Yes. And, and, and it's a much more, and it's a much more, uh, structured writing. Um, it's, it's, there are things that just have to be done in a certain structure when you're writing a screenplay that you don't have any of those rules in a novel. Um, yeah, it's, it's a very different thing. And it was, it, and it was, a struggle for me. It, I, it's something I'm continuing to. I keep writing scripts as though they were short stories, and that's not what they are. Um, that's a that's a a difficult learning curve. Yeah. So we've got the final novel due next year. So what, what's next? Well, then there's the three novels after that. <laughs> no, we we have we've signed a, a contract for another space opera series unrelated to the Expanse. Um, 
that we will be doing once we've once we've sewn this one up. Because you guys are still having fun. Because we're still having fun. That was James S.A. Corey, or Daniel Abraham and Ty Frank. The Expanse series is published by Orbit, with season four of the television adaptation released on Amazon Prime on the 13th of December. After the break, we'll be talking about the Costa Book Award shortlists. When Nancy Astor took her seat after the general election in 1919, some male MPs tried to physically block her. Watching the commotion from high up in the press gallery were Miss Marguerite Cody and Miss E. Cohen, the first women journalists ever tasked with such a role. These two reporters weren't the last to make their mark on the lobby, but I was surprised to find that not much else was known about these early pioneers. So, I went on a mission. I'm Kate Proctor, political correspondent for The Guardian. Head over to the Politics Weekly feed for a special episode where I'm joined by several of Westminster's most prominent women to look back over the decades and explore how women have shaped the lobby that I find myself working in today. It's not just about doing those women a favour, letting them into the press gallery. They are a democratic imperative because without them, we only see half the world. Can't wait for you to hear it. Welcome back to the Guardian Books podcast. The Costa Book Awards shortlist were announced last week. It is the only major UK book prize open solely to the UK and Irish authors and is judged by a mixture of booksellers, writers and journalists and awarded to the most enjoyable books of the year in five categories. Novels, first novels, biographies, poetry and children's books. The winner of each category go on to contend for overall book of the year. Regular listeners may recall that last year's winner, as predicted on this very podcast, was The Cutout Girl, a family memoir come Second World War story by Bart Van S. So, Richard and Claire, what do you make of this year's lists? Well, I think one of the interesting things about the Costa is because of this enjoyable books tag and because the pool of judges that they um, they tend to have is slightly different, you always get books that you've never heard of. Mm. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so on the... Uh, for the Novel of the Year shortlist, you've got one of the four books is um, Confession with Blue Horses by Sophie Hardach, um, and it's, head of, it's published by Head of Zeus, um, and it's uh, about a daughter and an archi- archivist's search for the truth about a family who have been torn apart in Stasi-era Berlin, and um, it's hardly been reviewed at all. Mm. And likewise, on the first novel um, shortlist, you've got that, The Other Half of Augusta Hope by Joanna Glenn, which is published by the Small Press, the Borough Press. Um, and that's a dual narrative set in London and Burundi, which wasn't reviewed at all, to my knowledge. Um, so, you know, it, we always talk, moan about the fact that the same books get all the prizes and get all the attention. And this prize often throws up interesting exceptions. Yeah, well, isn't it interesting that sometimes you're kind of disappointed when you look at a shortlist and you don't necessarily have a uh, a relationship with the book already? But of course... The wonderful thing about prizes is that they are going to possibly introduce you to things you haven't heard of. Um, and there are some familiar faces, like Jonathan Coe's there on the, the Novel Award for Middle England. Um, and uh, also uh, Rowan Hiseo Buchanan, um, who he's, she's back for her second novel. Um, I actually, I really liked her first novel, but um, I've got to say, I actually tried this novel. And if we're talking about enjoyability, I actually didn't, I didn't stick with this one. I read about half of it and then sort of let it slowly drift away from me um but she's she's a good writer she's very talented and very young so um hopefully it's not sort of her 
first and last Costa um, shortlisting. And Shadow Play, which is actually really, really fun. Um, it's, it's a historical it's a novel. Romp. Of... It's what we would call a romp, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Um, it's about... my sort of area because it's about Bram Stoker yeah. when he was a theatre a theatre man and he, him getting into a love triangle with, with Henry, the, Irving. Uh, the Henry Irving and the actress Ellen Terry. And you're right, just the kind of book that if it appeared on a book alo- uh, shortlist or book along list, people would be up in arms about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, there's, a lot, there's a lot of comedy on these on these fiction lists, isn't there? Uh, Diary of a Somebody by Brian Bilston, which again is a is a, a novel that wasn't reviewed at all, which is a sort of comic midlife crisis novel by somebody who's best known as the poet laureate of Twitter. So he comes out, he, he's, he's sort of come up writing sort of sa- saucy little little ditties mm. in, in 148 characters and suddenly here's this novel. And Queenie, I'm so glad Queenie's there. Queenie's like one of my favourite books. Which again, it sort of touches the the Bridget Jones um, base really, doesn't it? Although it's more interesting. It's much more than that. And um, there was a slightly uh, damning uh, comment from the judges (laughs) when it was announced that Queenie was nominated. They said it was uh, uh, surprisingly thought-provoking, which I was (laughs) like, God, we we actually took that out of our news story because we just like, that was slightly damning of quite a good book. But I guess it's the I think it is the idea that you're going to go in. A lot of reviews called it the Black Bridget Jones, um, but it is a lot about uh, mental health and it's got some really and ties some really naughty stuff about race um, and, and interracial dating. Ob- and ob- objectification of women's, bo- black women's black bodies. Black women's, women's bodies, yeah. yeah. Um, um, it's, it's not just about fiction though, is it? We should mm. uh, uh, tip our hat to Jay Bernard, who's on the poetry oh, yeah. list. Oh, oh yes, Jay Bernard, who... I've been watching, well, we've both been watching since they won the, the Ted Hughes Prize, which was set up by the Poet Laureate, Car- uh, Carol Ann Duffy, um, for, the, for an extraordinary collection of poems, including um, uh, the poem which sets the theme of this collection, which is about um, the um, a house fire in Deptford in 1981, in which 13 teenagers died, um, which has been, has become, you know, a sort of benchmark of the civil rights movement. It sort of was was instrumental in kicking off the Brixton riots. Interestingly, a couple of bir- bird collections. <laughs> bird-based now, collections. now, one of my things about uh, theories about um, poetry is it they it, they really benefit from finding something that is a breakout subject, and birds is quite often the breakout <laughs> subject. Um, so, Paul Farley, very distinguished um, poet. Um, he, his t- his collection is titled "The Mizzy," which actually is short for mizzle thrush. Um, um, and it's about, it isn't just about birds, but it intersperses bird poems with other poems. And then the other one is called the Reckless, called Reckless Paper Birds. So it's obviously got birds in it. And that's <laughs> a third collection by John McCullough um, from the very interesting um, um, publisher penned in the margins who, who sort of do crossover performance and stage and page work. Yeah, we've got another bird on the um, Children's Award shortlist as well. We've got Asher and the Spirit Bird by Jasbinder Bilan, which is published by Chicken House. Um, an Indian magic realist story of a little girl going in search of her father. But the children's award shortlist is, is surely dominated by Mallory Blackman with yeah. Crossfire. And then uh, with biography then, um, on Chapel Sands, one of our very own, Laura Cumming, who is a, a critic at The Observer. I absolutely love this book um, because it it uses pictures in a way that I haven't seen a family memoir do. Um, that is her source material. But, but she shows how by you can... You can find things in photographs if you look closely enough um, that nobody else has actually spotted before that didn't appear to exist before. Um, but there's also um, the volunteer, which is um, a story of a um, of a, a Polish, an extraordinary Polish guy. He's called Witold Pilecki, and um, he was an anti-Nazi um, 
activist who got himself interned in Auschwitz in order to file reports on what was really going on there and nobody believed him it's a really sad story because in the end he got after the war he got executed and in Extremist, the life of war correspondent Marie Colvin, um, which I guess actually, if we're going to talk about conventional biography, it is sort of a standard biography of a person, but it's um, obviously an amazing story because she's everyone would recognise her from the photos of her with her eye patch looking extremely amazing commanding. Because she's amazing. She was amazing, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and um, she, was, she was killed in in Syria in 2012. But and she was she was a, sort of last of a iconic breed in a way. She mm. was a, a Martha Gellhorn type, and and actually. I think part of the fascination of her story is that you, that, you know, you can't really do that anymore no. because people just do get killed. That mm. that that sort of strange immunity of of the press when you had a sort of press vest, or it, you know, as as similarly the, the the immunity of having a doctor's vest on mm. or a sort of Red Cross vest on, that's now gone. Yes, and you know, she had an amazing career, and she um lost her eye in her journalism work um from shrapnel, um. And there was a fantastic collection of her journalism, um, if, if anyone's interested, actually, um, called On the Front Line, um, which was produced a few years ago. Um, but I guess now we're at shortlist stage in terms of all of these books. We've got 20 books. Who's going to win? Come on, make a call. <laughs> you made a call about Bart Van Ness last year. <laughs> can, you, can you pick it already? <laughs> I feel like if we've got a biography last year, the biography's not going to win again. I mean, I personally think it might go to well i i tell you who i'd i'd really like it to go to jonathan coe really and that's a bit of a retro suggestion because i think re- jonathan coe is a really interesting good writer who has somehow slipped under the radar mm. he was he was incredibly big back in the 1980s when the rotters club came out and and um and the closed circle then the closed circle um, and this revisits his characters and um he's massive in europe and he is a very popular writer, but he's somehow sort of never quite eaten at the high table. Mm-hmm. And I think possibly because he absolutely ploughs his own furrow. He does not make concessions to what prize juries want, which I think if you've managed to sustain that over as many years as he has, it's really impressive. <laughs> you deserve a prize at the end of it. <laughs> Richard, how about you? What do you reckon? Oh, I don't know if, uh, what I reckon. I'd like to see Mallory Blackman win. And mm. I'd also like to see Jay Bernard win. I think those would be very interesting. Wins. Very, very interesting, yeah. yeah. But who I, knows? <laughs> I'm going to put my vote in for Queenie just because I like it. That's my analysis. That's all for this week. Next week, we talk to Megan Phelps Roper about life since leaving her family and the highly controversial teachings of Westboro Baptist Church. If you have any thoughts about this week's episode, get in touch on Twitter, at Guardian Books, or on the podcast page. And remember, you can subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. But for now, from me, Sean Kane. Me, Richard Lee. Me, Claire Armistead. And our producer, Esther Opoku-Jenny. Thanks for listening, and goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.